Good morning. Man, it's great to see you guys. Great to have you together here in the room. And also those of you watching online, we know most of our church is still online. Uh, it's great to have you joining in with us as well for week two of this series, Jesus People. Um, it's interesting, if you were to come to my house right now, there would be things that you would see that I no longer see. There'd be things that you would see instantaneously, like you would immediately pick up on, on certain things and spot them that I have a long time stopped being able to see. Um, you know, stuff that needs to be cleaned, uh, fingerprints, smudge prints on windows and all over the place, uh, broken things, things that have been broken for months in my house that I just, I don't even see them any longer. Uh, uh, pictures that are like hung sideways, not quite hung right on the wall. Uh, blood stains on the carpet. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We, we clean those up. Um, but uh, the, the reason I, that you would see those things and the reason that I would no longer be able to see those things is because I see those things all the time. You, you understand what I mean? They, they've just become familiar to me. After a while, you kind of start to lose sight of things uh, that you see every single day. But other people who it's fresh to, they, they would walk in and see it immediately. Uh, my mom, when, years ago, uh, she decided to surprise my dad with a gift. And what she decided to do is she decided she was going to get him a brand new recliner. So we were kids, uh, you know, my dad sat in the same chair, the same recliner in front of the TV every single day. And so he was away on a trip and my mom had this new recliner brought in. It was the same color as the old one. And she put it there and she said to us kids, okay, don't say anything to your dad. It's a surprise. So we didn't say anything to my dad for weeks. No joke. Finally, one day the man is sitting there in the chair and he goes, hey, is this a new chair? <laughs> But you, you have things like this in your life too, don't you? You, you? There are things that you no longer see because they've just become familiar to you. If you're a parent like me, that newborn baby cry, right? The first time you ever heard that, it like it stops you in your tracks and with wonder, oh my gosh, that's my child. That's the sound of my child. That voice becomes the familiar middle school voice that's just always annoying you in the background in your house right? Uh, that school that you were so happy to be able to return back to in person has now, after a, even just a short couple of months, has just become like the prison cell you have to march to every single day. Uh, that spouse that you were so excited to marry, if we're not careful, becomes the familiar roommate that we just kind of tolerate in our lives, right? This is, this is what happens. In this letter that we're looking at today to the church in Ephesus, it's Jesus speaking to his church, the ancient church of Ephesus in this ancient city, but it also speaks to us today. And Jesus is asking the question, can that happen with your relationship with me as well? Is it possible that I can just become familiar to you as well? The way Jesus actually phrases it is, have you lost your first love for me? Have you lost your first love for me? Is your passion waning? Has the gospel message just become familiar? Or, or am I still first? Am I still in first place? Is your love for me still at the top, the very first most important thing in your life? That's what Jesus invites us to ask as he invites the church in Ephesus to ask that question for themselves. And so we're going to look at Jesus' words in this letter um, so this is Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the first of the seven churches that Jesus speaks to. And he says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So this is Jesus speaking. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. These are Jesus' words to his church there in the city of Ephesus. And just to kind of, uh, as we begin to kind of work through this and unpack what he just said, uh, the, as I was, you know, looking at this letter this past week, what I realized is it almost reads like a criticism sandwich. You've heard of the criticism sandwich? It's like if you're trying to give someone feedback, you start with something positive, right? Like that's like the top bun. And then you kind of get to the criticism. Hey, here's the part you could be better at. And then you close with something good too. And so we're going to get to the, the closing part here in a minute, the last part of what Jesus says. But he starts out with some good things and then he kind of moves to the difficult things. And so I just want to look at these together. Jesus says, I, I want to begin by commending you. He begins by encouraging the church there in Ephesus. And he says, here, I want, I want to commend you. I want to tell you, I, I see your hard work. I see how hard you are working and laboring as the church in the community that you live in. And that was saying something for this city in this time. Here's what we know about Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the largest, most spotlighted cities in the empire. This would have been around 95 AD is when this letter to the church in Ephesus would have been written in the book of Revelation. And at this time in empire history, for the Roman empire, Ephesus was around 225,000 people, we think. Now, that may not sound like a lot to you, but in the ancient world, Ephesus was basically like the New York City or the L.A. of its day. It, it was a center for culture. It was a center for empire, for emperor worship. It, it was a center for all these, these things. And so go ahead to that picture, if you will. This is actually the ruins of Ephesus today. You can actually go in, in western Turkey and visit this. This giant thing right here is called the Great Amphitheater. It's seated around 25,000 people. You can stand right there at the base of it without any sound system, without any microphone amplification, and you could, you could watch a th you know, theater or a play or a musical performance, and you could hear everything perfectly the way it's designed. It's amazing. And so people would come from all over to see the greatest uh, you know, productions and theater of that day. This right here was called the Agora. It was this huge, it was like nothing rivaled it in the ancient world. It was, it was this huge outdoor marketplace. So you could literally go in the Agora and you could get goods from all over the empire, the finest goods, the finest uh, cloth, the finest products that you could possibly want to buy. You would move to Ephesus to make something of yourself. You would move to Ephesus because you wanted to work hard, because you wanted to make a fortune, because you wanted to make a name. A lot of people went to Ephesus because it was the place to go if you wanted to make it. And so Jesus says to the church, he says, I want to commend you for the way you've, you've worked hard in this city. You've labored in a, in a city that has this high value. And then he goes on, he says, but not just that, I want to, I want to commend you for your perseverance. He says, you, in this city, you've suffered as Christians, as the church, you've suffered 
without giving up. You've suffered for me. You suffered for my name without giving up. Here's what we know is that somewhere at 95 AD, the church was about 40 years old in Ephesus. So as Blake was talking a minute ago, Paul came and he started the church in Ephesus. And it's about 40 years after the church had got going that's in this city. And the church during those 40 years would have undergone persecution from two different Roman emperors, Emperor Nero and then now, at this point, they're under the Roman emperor Domitian. Both of those emperors, if you look them up in history, they were known for persecuting Christians. They were known for killing Christians, for martyring Christians. And so you're in one of the largest cities. There's nowhere to hide. You're spotlighted. You're in Ephesus, and you're a Jesus follower. And Jesus says, I want to commend you. You haven't given up. You've persevered. But not only that, he says, I also want to commend you because you have not tolerated evil. Tolerance has not become your highest value. Says you, you've held to a high standard of character and integrity. Says you don't tolerate evil. Now, that statement is actually saying something pretty significant for the city of Ephesus. What we know about Ephesus is that it was kind of a hotbed, a center for a particular uh, carnal sexuality. So it was a harbor city. It's actually four miles away from the coast now, but at the time it was right on the coast. And people would come from all over. This is well documented, all over the Roman Empire to the city of Ephesus because they knew they could find any kind of sex they could possibly want in Ephesus. That was where you went. And so uh, prostitution was, was a major part of that city. It was a major part of how people made their living was in sex work. In fact, in the ancient ruins, um, go ahead to that picture if you could. This is actually, they, think, they call it the most ancient ad of all time, advertising the most ancient profession. This is an ad for a brothel. And it's actually, it's part of the, the walkway. It's a, it's a part of the marble uh, street walkway that would have been in the main part of town. So this was right out in full view. It was just an advertisement for a brothel. Some of you are like, I don't get it. How is that an advertisement for a brothel? So if you care, I'll give you kind of, here's what we think it's saying. It's a left foot right here. So it's saying as you're walking up ahead on the left, right above the foot, I don't know if you can see it there on the screens, uh, but there's a little cross. So it's an intersection. So there's an intersection as you come and over up here, there's going to be a library on this part of the intersection. And right over here is going to be the brothel at this part of the intersection. And then this is a change purse with money. So it's saying up ahead on your left at the intersection, here's the brothel but no money, no honey, my friend. That's, that's what it's saying. So imagine you're walking along and this is what you see. It's just right out in front. It's, it's paraded in front of you as part of the idol worship, the temple worship at the time. It's in the theater. It's everywhere you look. It, the city is set up to engage people's needs or wants or whims sexually. And Jesus says, I want to commend you because you did not tolerate evil. You've maintained a high standard of integrity and character. And then the last thing he says is he says, I want to commend you for your doctrine. Doctrine meaning right beliefs. You haven't allowed your doctrine, your beliefs to get mixed in with the culture of the time. In Ephesus, there were two main temples. There was the temple to the goddess Artemis. And then there was, at the time of the writing of this letter, there was, um, go ahead to that next picture there. There was this, this is the remains of the temple to Domitian. The cult of emperor worship was a major part of this city. And so if you wanted to become somebody in Ephesus, if you wanted to become a person of influence, you would have to at some level participate. You would be expected to participate in worship of the emperor. The emperor Domitian claimed that he was God. 
He claimed that he was Lord and he, he required people to acknowledge him as such. And Jesus basically says, hey, even in this city, you, you've kept the right doctrine. You haven't mixed your politics and your faith together. You've actually, you've actually kept, kept your beliefs in the right categories. So he commends them for all these things. He acknowledges you've, you've done a great job. It's hard to be a Christian in the city of Ephesus. And so he encourages them for that. But then he says, yet I hold this one thing against you. He says, you've forsaken your first love. You've forsaken your love for me. And Jesus says, remember your first love above everything else. Or Jesus says, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Imagine a husband. And this husband, you know, works hard at his job. Uh, this husband protects his family. Uh, imagine uh, this, is, this is a husband who provides for every need, everything his kids want, everything his wife wants. He provides everything for their enjoyment, yet he's lost all tenderness. There's no warmth. There's no uh, genuine affection or care anymore. It's just dutiful. Is that a good marriage? Would you call that a healthy marriage? Is that the kind of marriage you'd want to be in? And Jesus, essentially what he's saying to his church, the church is called the bride of Christ. That's the metaphor all the way through the New Testament. What Jesus says is, look, it's actually possible to, to work hard, to have the right beliefs, to have the right stance on all the right issues. It's possible to be faithful and persevere through hard times. And yet you miss the main thing. Love. For a Christian, the highest value that Jesus holds us to is the value of love. We, we are supposed to have this relationship with Jesus where, as, as we were just singing about a moment ago, we stand in his love. Where we have this abiding relationship with him, where we remain in his love, and it's actually him that does the work and accomplishes the fruit through us as we just remain in him. And Jesus says, I have to be first. Your love for me has to be primary. And Jesus says, not just your love for me, but as, as you love me, you learn to love other people. In John 13, Jesus says, the world will know that you are my disciples by this because of how you love. That's how they'll know. That's how they'll be able to spot you in a city like Ephesus, in, in a world like the one we live in today. Love, that's the highest value Jesus hold us, holds us to. See, here's the problem. When we, when we begin to forsake our first love, when we begin to sort of attach all these th other things to our faith and we sort of cover up or lose Jesus as our first love and Jesus as, as our primary focus, what the problem with it is it cheapens grace. That's what actually happens in our lives is it begins to cheapen the grace. It begins to cheapen the gospel message. And so we don't value that as the foundation of everything. And so we start to go hunting and looking for other things that we can kind of like add to our faith, add to the gospel. See, oftentimes what happens is we have this kind of belief that Jesus is here to kind of help us make our behavior a little bit better. Jesus is pushing a behavior modification program. A lot of times that's how you, you hear the church talk about Jesus and what it means to come to faith and, and to begin to follow Jesus. Jesus did not die on a cross so that he could make bad people a little more good. Jesus came and died on a cross so he could make dead people alive for all of eternity. And, and it was his love that compelled him to do that. It was, it was the love Jesus had that put him on that cross. It was his love that held him there. It wasn't nails. It was his love. 
And so what happens is as we begin to forsake our first love, over time as the gospel message just, just becomes kind of familiar to us and we begin to attach other things to it, uh, it, grace gets cheapened. And what we begin to believe, it's a lie that we all begin to believe very subtly. And it's this idea that I only matter if. It's a question of value and we all have an if. I only matter if. Uh, for some of us, I, I only matter if I get good grades. Uh, I only matter if I don't sin or struggle in these ways. I only matter if I'm able to work and perform well. I, I only matter if I'm successful in business or marriage or, or parenting or whatever. And what happens is when we begin to believe this lie for ourselves that that's where my value comes from, I only matter if I perform in all these areas. What happens is we begin to apply that to everybody else in our lives, our kids, our spouse, our friends, our neighbors, the people that we work with. And we begin to say, well, you only matter if these people only matter if they're able to perform and produce. And what happens to a church when the church begins to forsake its first love of Jesus and, and Jesus isn't the focus anymore and we begin to believe this lie, I only matter if what happens to a church is a church eventually devolves into a group of people who are just trying to perform well for one another so they can belong. That sounds awful to me, doesn't it? sounds horrible. Who would want to be a part of that? Who watching from the outside would actually want in on that? And so, so at some level, we have to reclaim. Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, you need to go back and remember, it, uh, there's some great things you're doing. Don't give that up. It's great. But don't forget the why. Your love for me has to be primary. Your love for me is the most important thing. I have a, a friend uh, many of you know him, actually. Uh, he used to be on staff here, and he, uh, he has this huge collection of, he calls them thumbs-up pictures with famous people. And um, so, I mean, literally, if you get him talking, he will just show you this mountain of pictures he's got. Over the years, he, he has literally put himself in positions to meet famous people, people who have accomplished something great or have some level of status or fame or whatever. Sometimes he's traveled great distances to stand and be in the right place at the right time. And then what he does when he meets one of these famous people, you know, is he'll go, hey, can I get a thumbs up picture? So he's got all these pictures of him going like this with the, with the famous person with the thumbs up and because, because that's, he, that's a person of value. That's a person who's done something, a person who's accomplished something, right? They have value because of their status, because of what they've done. Like you won't find in his collection of pictures him with like a homeless guy in downtown Grand Rapids. Like that's, that's not what it's about. Where, where does your value come from? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever asked that question? Where, where does my value come from? The gospel tells us your value cannot come from what you do or how well you behave. Your value is gifted to you by Jesus, by what he did for you on the cross, by his sacrificial death and his resurrection, your value, your identity comes from him. And, and that has to be the foundation. That has to be the starting place. But I, I want to be careful here because it's, it's easy to hear that message. And then what we begin to believe is, uh, okay, well, as long as I just love Jesus, then I guess it's all good. And I can just do whatever I want. <laughs> Jesus actually is not saying, hey, as long as you love me, just do whatever you want. Just go out there, live it up, man. It's all good. That's actually not what he's saying. Just make sure you love me. Uh, and we see that in what he says next. So remember, it's the criticism sandwich. He starts out with, hey, I commend you for these things. And he says, but you've lost your first love. And then he wraps up with a positive statement. He says, but this is in your favor. 
You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. That's a positive thing. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. And then he, every one of these letters, we're gonna, we talked about this last week, closes with this statement. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. In other words, these words are for us today, not just for the church in Ephesus in the first century. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life and the paradise of God. So he closes that criticism sandwich. He says the last positive thing, he says, the Nicolaitans, you hate their evil deeds just as I do. So we got to ask the question, who are the Nicolaitans, right? Who's he talking about? The Nicolaitans were, what we know is that they were a sect of Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a heresy of the early church. And we probably think that they were followers of Nicolaus of Antioch. You can read about him in Acts chapter 6 if you're interested. He was one of the seven in Jerusalem that was, uh, you know, given to head up the ministry in Jerusalem there. And so somewhere his followers went off the track. And what they actually believed at this point, the Nicolaitans believed in something that we would refer to today as antinomianism. And antinomianism, big word, it basically just means, uh, if you, it's a theological construct that basically says, hey, I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, therefore it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I do with my life, it doesn't matter what I do with, with my time. As long as, I, as long as Jesus is the name, uh, you know, that I do it under, everything's good. That's antinomianism. That's not the gospel either. And the problem with antinomianism, just like the, you know, the other uh, thing where we get our value from what we do is antinomianism also cheapens grace. This belief that, hey, as long as I claim the name of Jesus, as long as I love him, I can just do whatever I want, that cheapens grace too. That's not the gospel either. And, and that's what Jesus invites us to do. He offers us his love freely, but what happens is, is we begin to believe a lie when we believe this, and it's if the lie on the other side of things was, I only matter if, the lie on this side, the ditch on this side of the road is, it doesn't matter if. This is what we say. So as long as I love Jesus, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I treat people who I don't agree with across the political spectrum terribly. It doesn't matter. As long as the banner I have says Jesus, it doesn't matter that I'm breaking into the Capitol. Too soon? <laughs> it, it doesn't matter, right? If I lie blatantly about things in my life or in my business or go to the other side of that, it doesn't matter. As long as I say I love Jesus, it doesn't matter if I reject his definition of sexuality and purity. I'm just going to live my truth. That's all I'm going to do. It doesn't matter. Okay, that's not the gospel either. What Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, he's saying, I want you to fall back in love with me so passionately that I am first and foremost in your life to the point where you would never dream of doing those things because of your love for me. Because that's not how you act with, towards somebody that you love. What Jesus is doing is he's putting it in a relational context for us. He's putting our walk with him. He's putting our beliefs. He's putting everything into a relational context. It's out of your love for me. Reclaim your first love for me and live out of that. That's what we're invited to do. When my grandma was 92, uh, she started to experience dementia. It was in her, the last year of her life. She was 93 when she passed away. 
And as she began to get worse and worse with, with dementia, my parents moved her to a nursing home that was about five minutes away from their house in Indiana. And uh, my parents both were newly retired, so they had time. And so they moved her just five minutes away in this nursing home. And my dad would go to visit my grandma, his mom, every single day in this nursing home. And so in that last year, I came home at a certain point. Our family went, went home and we went to visit my parents. And while we were there visiting my parents, my dad said, hey, I, I'm going to go over and see grandma. You want to go with me? I said, yeah, absolutely. So my dad and I together go five minutes away to the nursing home to see my grandma. And the first thing I noticed when we go in the building is everybody knows my dad, like by first name, all the people who work there, all, all the employees, you know, a lot of the residents, they all knew my dad by, you know, on like a first name basis because he came in there every single day. So we go a bit down the hall and we go into the room uh, where my grandma is and we begin to just sit down and, and like have a visit with her. And at some point in the, in the visit, she starts to get kind of like confused or kind of agitated. And so she says something along the lines of like, my feet hurt. That's the big thing I remember. She, she was always talking about my feet hurt, my feet hurt. For some reason, that was like a thing. And so uh, what happens is at some point in the visit, my dad pulls up this like stool and sits down right in front of my grandma. And he takes off her slippers, takes off her socks, and he just begins to rub my grandma's feet. And I'm sitting there watching my dad rub my grandma's feet. And uh, little by little, she starts to kind of fall asleep until finally she's just asleep and he's still just sitting there rubbing her feet. And I'm just kind of standing there in the room like this. I'll be honest, like I started to just feel kind of awkward. Uh, and so I, I walk over to my dad and I just kneel, I kind of just quietly, I, I bent over and I said, hey dad, you know, there are other people here who work here who can do that for her. He says, yep, I know. So I just stand there for a little while longer. He keeps rubbing her feet. Finally, it gets awkward enough. Again, I, I, I lean over, I say, Dad, we, we can go. Like, you know, she's not going to remember this, right? He says, yep, I know. And as I stood up again, another thought occurred to me. And so one last time I bent over and I said, Dad, do you do this every single day when you come to visit Grandma? Every single day. Her value did not come from anything she was able to do or, or something she was able to perform or accomplish on her own. Her value came from whose she was. My, my dad wasn't going in there every single day and, and doing this every single day because she knew and she was going to remember who she was. He was doing it because he knew who he was. And he knew whose he belonged to. And when you put things in a relational context, what you begin to realize is that's, that's the way our faith is supposed to look. It's not a list of principles. It's not a list of, uh, you know, behaviors that we're supposed to perform. It's the context of a relationship where, where we know whose we are. When we know whose we are, we know how to act. God cares about us deeply. His love for us transforms us to the core of our being. And when we keep him first in our lives, he transforms us into the way that we, we love others, not because we're scripted to do so, but because it's just, we can't do anything else when we truly are putting him first. I love the way that Dallas Willard said this. He said it a lot better than I'm saying it here in this sermon. 
He said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace, when we haven't cheapened it, grace at, at its core, it's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. In other words, God cares about your hard work. He cares about your perseverance. He cares that you don't tolerate evil, that you have a high standard of character and integrity. God cares about those things. He cares about your faithfulness, but not as a way to earn your salvation. God cares about how we act and how we live out of an outflow of our love for him. That when we are truly in love with him, we are living that out. We behave out of what we know about whose we are. And so the last question here then is, how do you reclaim your first love? How do you do that? How how do you do that? How do you reclaim your first love? Jesus says to do two things very clearly uh, in this passage. He says, repent and do the things you did at first. Repent, do the things you did at first. So first of all, repent. Um, this, this word repent, we've talked about it before. It was actually the central message uh, that Jesus had when he first began preaching. You, you heard it again and again. He would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent means you're going this direction, you turn around and you go a different direction. Repent means literally to turn or to return. It's like you do a 180 and you go the other direction. In this passage, Jesus says, I have this one thing against you. He says, you have forsaken your first love for me. Uh, the, the word forsaken there is the Greek word aphiomai. Aphiomai, actually, it's a very strong word. It actually means to abandon. It means to forsake or to abandon, or it's basically to, to walk away from is what it means. Some translations of this passage have Jesus saying, uh, you know, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. I actually think that's a bad translation of this passage. Because if I lost it, I know, I don't know where it is, Right? If I lost it, there's nothing I can do. I lost it. But if I've forsaken it, if I've abandoned it, if I've walked away from it, I know exactly where it is. All I have to do is turn around and walk back. I have to turn around. I have to repent. I have to return. And the beautiful thing about the gospel, the beautiful thing about grace is that we're never too far gone. We're never, we've never done anything that puts us so far outside Jesus' death on the cross was every bit as much for you as it was for me. And his death on the cross was for every sin you have committed, every sin you are committing even right now as you sit here, and for every sin you have yet to commit. It's that good. Repent, turn back, do the things you did at first. How do you restore love in a marriage? date again. You go back. You remember why you fell in love. You do the things you did at first. In the context of relationship, that Jesus says, you have to, we have to turn around. We have to keep love as the primary thing. I had a way I was going to, some other things I was going to say. As I was praying in this room last night, I came in here. Some of you guys know this. I, I come in and David and I were in this room last night walking around and praying. And I was looking over these, this passage again and just praying for our church, praying for our country, praying for everything, even as this last week has sort of unfolded. And what I realized for me personally, and I think for us as a church, these words, we need them today. 
They're every bit as apt for us in this moment in time, in this place, in this country as they were in ancient Rome in the city of Ephesus at that time. So I just want to offer a prayer for us. Is there anywhere where we just need to say, God, I repent. I repent. I turn back from the ways I've covered you up. I've attached all these things. I've let the gospel message just become familiar. And I need to reclaim what it means to put you first. That my love for you is primary. That I can't do anything to earn it. And I, and I, and I don't measure others by whether they live up to it and they've earned it. And, and once, I, once I embrace that, I turn and I live out of that. Is there any way we need to do that as the church? Is there any way we need to do that as individuals? And so Jesus, we just come before you right now. We just recognize God, even, even today, even in this moment, God, there are ways in which uh, we allow our hearts to get compromised by other things. We allow other agendas to compete with your love. And so even in this moment, God, right now, we want to return. We want to repent. We want to come back and we want to be reminded again of the gospel message. This incredible truth, God, that you offered yourself on our behalf, that you became sin on our behalf so that in you, we could become the righteousness of God. That our lives have been bought and paid for and purchased by your blood on Calvary. And, and it's not, you know, it's not our lives we're living. It's not our agenda that we're living in in some attempt to prove ourselves to you. But God, we've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. It's you who live your life in us and through us. And that's what we want. We want that more and more, God. We want to be your people, the kind of people who, who proclaim your name so highly and your name is so evident that people are recognized by the way we love you and by the way we love each other that we've been with you, that, we, that you are first in our midst. So we return, God, we return to that and we ask you to fill us and to allow us to be a representation of your love to this world we live in. We ask this in Jesus' name and everybody said, 